Welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. My name is Troy Mix. I'm Associate Director at the Institute and your host for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is the third in our continuing series on the future of remote work and what it might mean for businesses, communities, and policymakers in Delaware and beyond. So far, we've heard lessons learned from managing a remote work environment and considered the future of office space when more and more people may choose to work from home in the months and years to come. This episode examines the economics of remote work and features my February 16, 2021 interview with Dr. Adam Ozemek. Adam is Chief Economist at Upwork, which is an online platform that connects businesses of all sizes to freelancers, independent professionals, and agencies for all their hiring needs. We discussed findings from Upwork's Fall 2020 Future Workforce Pulse Report, including the current and forecasted prevalence of remote work, the economics of remote work for businesses and individuals, and what more remote work could mean for cities and regions. Let's get to the conversation. Thanks for joining me, Adam. Yeah, glad to be here. So I wanted to dive right in, talk about remote work and get your sense, I guess, to kind of level set a little bit. How prevalent pre-pandemic was remote work and how dramatic has the shift been over the last year? The pre-pandemic prevalence question is a little bit more complicated than it seems. It's not exactly straightforward because there's a lot of different ways to define what remote work is. So if you ask very strictly percent of wage and salary workers who were working from home full time, it's like probably like 3%, something like that. But then when you start to look at, well, what about self-employed that expands it some more. And then if you look at what about people who don't work remotely, but they work in a co-working space or they work in a private office, the line between what's remote and what's not remote starts to get kind of fuzzy. Say you're a graphic designer and you do all your work for other clients, you're a freelancer, and you work in an office on the third floor of your house. That's clearly remote work. But say you interact with clients in the exact same way, entirely remotely, but you have a little office downtown. Is that remote work? From the perspective of how you interact with a client, it's entirely the same. But from the perspective of where you're located, like how you would describe the geography of your business, it becomes a little bit gray. So I think probably somewhere between five to 10% is how many were working remotely pre-pandemic. So now I think we're looking at, currently we're looking at like 40% or more who are still remotely. And I think long-term, what we're going to see when the economy comes back to normal is somewhere between 20 to 25%. So a significant increase, and it's going to go from something that, you know, one out of 20 to one out of 10 people do to something that one out of four to one out of five people do. So that's a really big change. It's going to be, you know, a very prevalent way of working. And these are people that work for their wage and salary employees, typically, when we're talking about this shift, right? As you said, there's a lot of people that were in the gray area before, but now we're talking about JP Morgan Chase, for example, sending people home and having real questions about whether they're going to bring them back or in what form. Is that right? We're going to see both, I think. 
So the stories we hear and the biggest change, I think, when you look at pre and post is going to be for wage and salary workers, because that's going to go from something that's relatively scarce to much more abundant. Whereas independent professionals, freelancers, self-employed, that kind of person, they were always disproportionately remote. But even there, I think we're going to see among them an increase in the percent remote. And also, I think an increase in the percent who are independent professionals as well, because being remote and being independent, they sort of go together well. And we've certainly seen on the Upwork platform a huge, huge demand over the last year, both on the client side and on the freelancer side. So I think both sides of the marketplace are having an increased interest in this way of working. And so the interest is one thing. It's kind of you know necessity at the moment in terms of public health emergency for a lot of people. In terms of forecasting that 20 to 25%, number of remote workers in the future, what seems to be working well at the moment that gives you confidence that employers will want that, employees will want it as well? Yeah. So certainly can't just rely on employee-only preferences, right? Because cost to the firm matters well. And organizational style or whatever you want to call it to the firm matters as well. So what I'm basing that 20 to 25% number on is a survey of hiring managers about their plans. So if anything, I believe that is conservative because this is what hiring managers are planning to do over the next year and the next five years in terms of their hiring. So that's relatively more concrete than just saying workers value this or don't value it. It's sort of their forward-looking projections, the people who are actually going to be making the decisions at the firms. Now, what's working better about this, what we found in our survey of hiring managers is a couple of things. There's fewer interruptions. There's less distractions. So like fewer, you know, unnecessary meetings, stuff like that. The lower commute time is obviously a big deal. And there's sort of a trade-off. In some circumstances, you lose a little bit on collaborativeness, but you get a better ability for like sort of heads down work. And you also get different kinds of collaboration too. I've already heard some professors saying like, I'm going to miss teaching by Zoom. There are things I can do and ways I can work. It works better than in person. And so I think that there are sort of collaborative advantages too. Overall, we see productivity going up more than it goes down, according to hiring managers. And that's consistent with all the experimental evidence we've seen as well. So you you look at, you know, productivity up and also, you know, costs down because it sort of increases your your labor market footprint. So, and this is one of the reasons why I'm optimistic that these estimates are actually conservative. Because generally, companies aren't doing that that much hiring remote right now. I mean, they are somewhat, and they always have been somewhat. But I think there are huge advantages to hiring remote that firms are going to discover, especially fully remote, which is that if you allow your workers to work remotely four days a week, or like, you know, they only have to come to the office a couple times a month, you expand your effective labor market footprint because now the two hour commute, hour and a half commute, is much less of a problem than it was pre-pandemic because you only have to do it a couple times a month. If you hire remotely entirely, now your effective labor market is your entire time zone or the entire United States or the entire world. And so that's a huge advantage to remote work that I don't think is being fully baked into the projections yet. And so I think that will make it lean towards higher than that. The other thing, of course, is if you make something, if you you are in a you have a product market niche and you find that remote work doesn't work for you and your employees, 
and maybe it's just you as the manager CEO, that's not the end of the discussion about whether your part of the economy will be reallocated to remote work or not, because you're going to have to vie with competitors for whom remote work does work. And you're going to have to compete against startups who are remote first. So just because one firm can't make it work doesn't mean that all their production and their sort of corner of the economy may just become reallocated away to a company who can make it work. And the making it work isn't just a convenience. It's a cost product that they're going to get out competed eventually or potentially. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that commute and non-commute distance piece is uh, really interesting, I think. And it's something that I know when I first started teasing this around in my head, I thought, oh, well, now we can attract, you know, anybody to locate anywhere and work wherever they want. Then I think about my job and like, well, currently I'm still, you know, somewhat tied to this area <laughs> and that's for the foreseeable future. You know, I'm not going to commute from upstate New York to uh, Delaware anytime soon. Do we have any kind of sense at this point about how many of those truly fully remote jobs there'll be versus how many of those you need to come in occasionally? Or do you think it's way too early to speculate on that? Well, the 20 to 25 percent number I said is the fully remote. We actually asked in addition to that partially remote, which was another like, I think, 10 to 12 percent or so. So that to me, I think firms are going to be experimenting with and we'll see. I do think that a lot of firms think that they are going partially remote, but that's because they they aren't yet experiencing the sort of benefits of fully remote. When you think about how do I maximize benefits and minimize risks with my current employees, it might sort of make sense to do the hybrid model because that seems like conservative. But eventually that conservative attitude will give away to economic realities if the economic realities are different than that, which I think in a lot of circumstances they will be. But now remember, we are, um, I'm talking 20 to 25% of the labor market. So I don't want to appear to be some like futurist, you know, uh, everyone's going to be at home kind of thing. Like that still leaves, you know, 80, 75% of work done in person. So, and, and then maybe when you include like partial remote, we're talking like 60 65%, something like that. So it's not the end of working face-to-face. -face. It's just, it's important to draw like a benchmark here. Like 20% will be a huge deal. <laughs> like that will be a huge deal. And it does not require that everyone work from home. And it does not require that work from home works for all companies. Yeah. So starting to tease out that who it's going to work for in terms of jobs and industries the first episode in the series, we talked to a logistics uh, president of a logistics company, and a lot of their work is computer and call work. And it seems like for the foreseeable future, those will be almost completely remote. Then they've got some kind of high collaboration jobs that they're getting better at using tools like Microsoft Teams, but they perceive they'll be you know in person at least part of the time. Uh, so that's like one type of industry. I look at, you know, the job I'm in at higher ed, uh, you know, we're teaching a lot online. We do need to have student contact at some point. Uh, that's part of the experience, for example. So it's unclear what that line will be. What do you see in beyond kind of the white collar, blue collar divide? What do you see in terms of the types of jobs where this is going to make a lot of sense? Two ways to look at that. One is the skill bias nature of the work that we see so far. So it does seem to be true that whether you look at like 
you know, Dingle and Nyman have a study where they look at like, what are the jobs that seem like they could be done remote and based on like the actual characteristics of the work they do. And there you have a sort of bias, the skill bias to it, where more educated, more skilled work seems more capable of being done remote. That's also true pre-pandemic as well, in terms of who actually was doing it. And certainly since the pandemic, that, that bias is still there as well, where the most remote group is those with advanced degrees or higher. They're the ones who are doing the most work from home. So I think that big picture, it's definitely going to be the more skilled things which tend to be able to be done from work. Now, it, it happens across the spectrum, of course, of skills and their examples. And, you know, basically every skill level of jobs, it can be dead remote, but it is, you know, a skill bias technology. The other thing I think that's important to think about is that if we're talking about largely professional skilled services, those jobs exist in almost every industry. In a lot of ways, it's more occupational determinant than industry determinant. For example, in the BLS data, the monthly current population survey, they asked a question now, they ask a question now about whether someone is working remotely. And what you can see in that data is even in the manufacturing industry, 20% of workers are remote right now. So that tells you, you know, that those are they have skilled professional services in those fields. And you're going to see it in occupations, even in sort of blue collar traditional industries, because those firms, they use marketing, they use legal accounting, design, creative programmers. Those are jobs that exist in most industries. So I would look, look towards the occupation level for a greater indicator of what will be done remotely than the industry, I believe. And again, thinking about the commute distance piece, the fully remote piece, there's been a lot written about people buying homes in different places or camping out during the pandemic, different places. What impacts have we seen so far uh, in terms of migration? What do you think long-term in terms of people where, where people choose to live? What do you think the impacts might be? First, let's talk about within metro area, the changes that we're seeing. Arpit Gupta uh, has a really great study he just put out on this where he looks at zip code level housing market data. And what he's seen is basically a flattening of the price gradient within city. So it used to be the closer that you got to the downtown core, the higher housing prices went when you're looking at either rents or prices. And the farther out you got, uh, the lower prices got. So, you know, a basic urban um, model, just you pay more to be close to the core. What he's found is post-pandemic, that sort of that slope has declined. You're still paying more to be close, close to the core, but less because prices have fallen more in the core than they have in the surrounding suburbs. And, you know, I think what you're seeing there is a, a declining disutility of commute because you don't have to do it as much as you used to. So being close to the core is less valuable and being out in the suburbs, it doesn't take as big of a hit. So I think that's, that's one way to look at it. The other thing, of course, is that the edge of a metro area has just increased. What is a reasonable commute has gone up. And so the effective labor market area is gone, will have gone up. So you're going to see places that didn't used to be considered suburbs of various metro areas become sort of suburbs of various metro areas. Those are the kind of within metro changes. The between metro changes, I think what we're seeing most is that places where you had a huge price effect of the labor market so what I mean by that is it was a agglomeration labor market and 
it that drove prices up. People were willing to pay a lot of money to access the labor market there. And in most cases also, they had inelastic housing supply. And so you have this expensive city because of access to jobs. That's a place that's going to take a price hit. And that's a place that is now taking a price hit. You can see it biggest in New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Seattle, what we think of as the sort of superstar metro areas. They're taking the biggest price hits because a lot of what supported the high prices there was that people were willing to pay to access those good jobs and they no longer need to do that as much. So those are like the big kind of trends that that I think you are seeing and we'll see more of. Beyond that, there's a ton of nuance and uncertainty about places that are going to sort of benefit from this and be harmed by it. The example I like to give is Philadelphia, which I think will benefit by being a greater option relative to New York. So you can live in Philly and commute to New York a couple times a month really conveniently on Amtrak. And so I think you'll see some people deciding, hmm, I'm going to pay these much, much lower house prices in Philadelphia and get to my office a couple times a month on a decent Amtrak ride that benefits Philadelphia. On the other hand, it's now much easier to live in the lower cost parts of Pennsylvania and come into Philadelphia via Amtrak a couple times a month. So Philly has the competitive gain and the competitive loss as a result of this. And it's hard to say exactly where it'll shake out. And I think you're going to see a lot of examples of places like that across the country. When we think about the public policy, you know, potential role for public policy, uh, what kind of public benefits do you think there are uh, for remote work potentially? So I think, think of it as leaning against a negative trend over the last few decades. And that negative trend was the growth of opportunity in superstar cities. Like you really had job creation, skilled job demand really became increasingly concentrated in superstar cities. And in those cities, you have inelastic housing supply. So what happened was, you know, you had agglomeration pulling more of economic activity into places where you had economic rents. So you get this productivity growth from putting all these people in these cities. And then that productivity growth just gets taxed away by land rent owners. And so if you think about like all economic, you know, increasing economic activity being concentrated in these places, it has the negative effect on the labor share value in the sense that a bigger piece of the pie is going to be going to land rent owners, which is just bad for efficiency. The other effect then is on the places that are sort of left behind. And what we've seen over the last few decades is an increasing skill bias of migration, which means in sort of layman's terms that a lot of parts of the country are losing their most skilled people. And they're not just seeing their, their population fall, they're seeing their prime working age population fall, and they're seeing their college educated population fall even faster. And that has a lot of negative spillovers for these places. And we are talking about like, if you look at measured by space, you're talking about most of the country, right? Measured by population, it's not most of the country, but it is a huge share of the country that's seeing this sort of demographic decline. Uh, this, this will help us lean against this. You know, it, it makes it easier to work and stay in those places. And the magnet superstar city agglomeration that was pulling skilled people out of these places is going to be weakened. And so I'm very optimistic about the effects of letting more skilled people sort of stay um, where they want and not feel like they have to leave in order to get access to the best jobs. Yeah. So to kind of add on and interpret that a little bit, I mean, 
you don't have to worry about attracting five big employers to keep your best people in town necessarily. Uh, there's less of that magnet. There's always going to be some of it, but there's less of it uh, potentially in the situation. Yeah, exactly. You no longer necessarily have to leave to find the best job opportunities. And if you do leave, this lets you come back once you get them. You can see a lot of like, you know, in your 20s, you still go to the big city, you sort of move up the ladder, you get to like an experience level at, at, you know, whatever company, and then you go remote and you come back. That's going to, I think, become a more common pattern. And you've been working remotely for a while. Is that right? Yeah, I was more and more remote. I, before Upwork, I was at Moody's and I was an hour or so away from where I live. So I had a long commute. And so gradually I was becoming more and more remote. By the time I was done there, I was only going into the office once, maybe twice a week. So I was one of those partially remote people. And then since I've been in Upwork, I've been fully remote because I'm still here in Pennsylvania and they're out there in California. How was the adjustment period? Uh, when you first started going remote? Well, it, you know, it was gradual because I was sort of easing into it at Moody's. And even before that, the job I did before that at a consulting company, I would work from home. Well, I would try to work from home like once a week or something because that was in Philadelphia, which is even a longer commute. And, and, you know, jobs for economists being like an hour more away from Lancaster, I've always sort of liked to work remote when I could to avoid those commutes. And just the longer I was at Moody's, I got the more ability to do that. And I, I just enjoy this way of working. I like to be home. I don't like to commute. And it's funny when you, when you are commuting, and I think a lot of people learn this this year, you sort of get used to it. And if you ask people, oh, geez, an hour commute, you know, how, how is that? Uh, you know, I'm used to it. Like I listen to my podcast. I don't mind it that much. You tell yourself that, but then once you don't have it, you're like, man, I can't believe I was used to that. And I think a lot of people are going to find that that's hard to go back to because like you sort of just, you know, there's something in humans that adapts and you sort of tell yourself that it's fine. There's a story, I think Robin Hanson and other economists tells a story like this thought experience that like if every morning you were woken up by a man coming into your room and punching you in the face, like it was out of your control and that was your alarm clock. Eventually, you'd start telling yourself, ah, you know, I don't mind it that much. It's kind of a fast wake up. And then, like, if you did it long enough, you'd start telling yourself, like, actually, this is how I like to wake up. And there's just something about human nature where we start to justify the things we need to be doing as being not as bad as they actually really are. And I think commuting is kind of like that. It's kind of like the guy who punches you in the face every morning to get up. You tell yourself it's not that bad, but then the day that that guy doesn't show up, you're like, man, actually, that kind of sucks. I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good uh, story there. I think, you know, we're all kind of in store for a bit of a punch in the face as we get back into, you know, what was normal for us. And it's going to be a little different going back. So appreciate you spending time today uh, talking through a little bit about what you envision and you know, what's working for companies and what's working for individuals and what we have to figure out. So thanks a lot for joining me today, Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me. For more on Adam's work, search for Upwork's Future Workforce Pulse Report and follow him on Twitter at Model Behavior. For more on this series on the future of remote work, consult the show notes and look out for articles posted on the website of the University of Delaware's Institute for Public Administration, ipa.udel.edu. 
Thanks again for tuning in to First State Insights. Reach out with any comments and be sure to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. I hope you'll join us again soon.